Good morning. My name is John. Today's reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verses 14 through 24. Please follow along in your own Bibles or simply listen as the scriptures are read. Again, that's John 7, starting with verse 14. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. Parents and guardians of children in preschool and kindergarten, you are invited to escort your children to the back of the room to join Kids Commons upstairs. As you are able, we invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. Then midway through the festival, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. The people were surprised when they heard him. How does he know so much when he hasn't been trained, they asked. So Jesus told them, my message is not my own. It comes from God who sent me. Anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or is merely my own. Those who speak for themselves want glory only for themselves, but a person who seeks to honor the one who sent him speaks truth, not lies. Moses gave you the law, but none of you obeys it. In fact, you're trying to kill me. The crowd replied, you're demon-possessed. Who's trying to kill you? Jesus replied, I did one miracle on the Sabbath, and you were amazed, but you... But you work in the Sabbath, too, when you obey Moses' law of circumcision. Actually, this tradition of circumcision began with the patriarchs long before the law of Moses. For if the correct correct time for circumcising your son falls on the Sabbath, you go ahead and do, do it so as not to break the law of Moses. So why should you be angry with me for healing a man on the Sabbath? Look beneath the surface so you can judge correctly. This is the word of the Lord. morning. My name's Chrissy, and welcome to Haverhill Commons Church this morning. It's always good to gather together and to worship God with you. This morning, as we always do, as is our custom, I'd love to invite you to join me in a moment of pause, just to allow ourselves to come present to where we are this morning and to put that before God. Father, thank you for bringing us here this morning. Thank you for gathering us to be your people together. Thank you that when we come together, you are always here with us. Pray that you would help us to come present to you this morning, to pay attention to the things that you might be speaking to us. Pray that you would take these words and use them in the ways that you want to use them. Make us more like you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Quick spoiler alert. Hunter and I are watching The Chosen, and this story references season three. So if you're not familiar with The Chosen, it's a multi-season, crowdsourced TV series about the life of Jesus. It's set primarily in first-century Judea and Galilee and follows the stories of the Gospels, focusing on Jesus and the people he interacted with, and particularly on the impact that he has on their lives. For those of you watching but not yet to season three, I promise to spare you the details and leave you in suspense. Although, let's face it, 
we all know how this one ends. A couple of weeks ago, Hunter and I watched an episode where Simon Peter gets into an argument with his wife, Eden. And after the episode, Hunter looked at me and said something like, why is she being so difficult? Clearly, Simon is trying to connect with her, and she just won't talk to him. Now, I looked back at him like he was from another planet and said something like, how can you be so oblivious? Clearly, there is more going on than what they've just said. Side note, not my finest moment of things to say to your spouse. So we then proceeded to debate the merits of this argument, Hunter siding with Simon and me with Eden. So that same week, I took a seminary class called Understanding Culture. And a day or two after our debate, my professor discussed communication styles and how some cultures prefer low-context communication, where straightforward, blunt communication is valued. If you have something to say, you just say it. Other cultures find this somewhat offensive, preferring high-context communication, where diplomacy, nuance, and subtlety are valued. If you have something to say, you prioritize the relationship, making sure you do it in a way that won't offend, even if that means you don't say it at all. As my professor talked, I started smiling to myself. Our debate explained. Hunter wasn't being unfeeling. He's just more of a low-context communicator. And I, or Eden, wasn't being difficult. I'm just more of a higher-context communicator. But it certainly didn't feel that way when we were debating it. I mean, Jesus was a high-context communicator like me, wasn't he? Always teaching in parables? Oh, wait. I'm preaching from a passage where he says, not one of you keeps the law. Rather blunt. Now, I'm sure Hunter and I are the only ones who have ever felt the need to rehash an argument from a TV series. Right? And maybe it's not exactly that, but perhaps, like us, you've sometimes found yourself quick to side with what feels familiar, with things that reflect your preferences or the way you would naturally do something. Perhaps you've consciously or unconsciously judged someone else as wrong or bad because their natural way of doing something is different than yours. Perhaps you've even carried this kind of thinking into a faith context, and you judge someone as less spiritual or less like Jesus because they do or think about something differently than you do. If so, you're not alone. One of the things I think we're going to see from this passage this morning is the ways we can be quick to assume that our way of doing things, our preferences are the right way, even the most holy. I think we're also going to see the way that Jesus challenges us in our thinking and invites us to seek him and his priorities first, and in so doing, to be better able to love others around us. We need some context to fully appreciate what happens in this story, so there are three things I'd like to keep in mind as we go. First, the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, he healed a man on the Sabbath, which seriously ruffled the feathers of the Jewish leaders. You might remember Matt preaching on this crime drama a few weeks ago. Second, since then, Jesus has been doing miracles, which are signs. Remember, we're in the middle of this series called Signs and Wonders in the Gospel of John. And he's been teaching in Galilee, and it was going really great until he grows, goes down a big rabbit hole about eating his body and drinking his blood and being sent from the Father. And then things go south really, really fast from a PR perspective. 
Third, all of chapters 7 and 8 take place in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles, or booths, also called Sukkot, which was one of the three Jewish feasts that required pilgrimage to Jerusalem. This feast took place in the early fall, typically September or October, and was a festival of thanksgiving for the harvest, as well as a time of remembering God's provision for his people during their wilderness wanderings. It lasted seven days, and during that time, pilgrims built temporary structures or booths to stay in, a reminder of their 40 years in the wilderness. It was also the most popular Jewish feast, which means Jerusalem would have been packed. With this context in mind, I want us to look at two clashes that occur in the passage, clashes that arise from misplaced and misunderstood priorities. The first happens between Jesus and his brothers in the beginning of chapter 7, a clash around the timeline Jesus should follow in his ministry. Jesus is avoiding Jerusalem because, to borrow Matt's theme, he knows he's something of a fugitive there. But his brothers smell an opportunity. The Jesus campaign just took a rough hit, and he lost a lot of followers. Not for long, his brothers think. Leave here and go to Judea, where your followers can see your miracles. You can't become famous if you hide like this, they say. Their priority for Jesus is quite clear. Fame, recognition, a following and perhaps the power and influence that come with those things. And can we blame them? The temptation for fame and influence is alluring. Our culture pushes this at us everywhere. Isn't it a good thing for people to know who we are? The more fame we have, the more influence we have, right? And don't we need this so that more people can hear about the gospel? Preaching to a megachurch of 15,000 is better than preaching to a church of 50. Isn't it? Isn't it better to play professional sports than coach Little League or to make it to Hollywood rather than community theater? But John gives us an intriguing explanation for Jesus' brother's statement. For even his brothers didn't believe in him. In this case, their perspective, their desire to push Jesus into acting now is attributed to their unbelief. And Jesus responds accordingly. He says, now is not the right time for me to go, but you can go anytime. The world can't hate you, but it does hate me because I accuse it of doing evil. This word time, it's kairos in Greek, often carries the idea of God's appointment or God's plan like we see in Ecclesiastes 3, where there's a time for everything. So in saying this, Jesus asserts that he's living in God's will and following God's plan for his life. He's operating on God's timing, not on worldly timing. But there's a subtle critique in this as well. If Jesus can't go now because it's not his time, his kairos, but his brothers can go anytime, the implication is that his brothers are not living with this sense of appointed time. Essentially, they're not following God's will for them, but rather operating by the priorities and timing of the world. If they had believed in Jesus, perhaps they would have trusted him to know the right thing. But since they didn't, they felt like they should tell him how and when to carry out his ministry. 
Anyone starting to feel a little uncomfortable with me here? I don't know about you, but I would love to let myself off the hook right now by saying, oh, Jesus' brothers were too concerned about worldly, secular things. They just weren't spiritual enough. Jesus wanted them to focus more on religious things. But I go to church, and I like to read theology, so check, all set. Except we're about to hit priorities clash number two. Jesus waits until it is the right time, and then he goes up to the festival secretly, staying out of the public eye. Now, it seems like a good portion of this crowd may not have been around the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem. And while they've probably heard rumors about him, they may not fully understand what he's like or the degree of the tension between him and the Jewish authorities. So partway through the festival, remember, it's seven days long, Jesus goes in the temple and he starts to teach. And right away, we see a cultural value, a religious preference bubble up. The people were surprised when they heard him. How does he know so much when he hasn't been trained, they asked. Now, rabbis of the day were typically trained in rabbinical schools. You knew who they'd studied under and where their teaching came from. And they generally tried to back up everything they said with references to tradition or precedent as a way of proving that they were not going outside of the established authority, but were instead continuing in that path. Authority passed from one to the next to the next, and Jesus wasn't in that chain. But as he tends to do, Jesus flips the whole thing on its head. If you'll allow me a very loose paraphrase, his response goes something like this. Look, I'm not a heretic. And I'm not denying God. But God is not bound by your preference or tradition. The idea that Jesus seems to be getting at here is that as we seek to do God's will, we will understand that what Jesus is teaching is true. But this comes from a position of faith and humility. If we can't see past our own assumptions about the right way to do church, or the best theological education, or who belongs in God's kingdom, or who is right about a particular issue. We might miss seeing Jesus for who he is, and we definitely might miss an opportunity to love others around us the way that he did. To establish his credibility, Jesus comes back to the idea we just encountered with his brothers. He's not here to gain a following, and he's not interested in being famous. If popularity or approval were his motive, they would have reason to question his authenticity. But since he's only seeking to glorify God, he's completely trustworthy. And almost as if to illustrate that, Jesus returns to the elephant in the room. The Jewish authorities want him dead. Moses gave you the law, but none of you obeys it. In fact, you are trying to kill me. I think that what Jesus is getting at here is that they have the law, but they're more interested in their own precise interpretations, their own traditions around how it should be carried out, and their own judgment of what is correct than they are in following God. They've taken the law, rolled it up in their preferences, and painted the whole new thing as if it all came from God kind of like how we love to quote verses that agree with the opinion we already hold, but we're much quicker to gloss over the ones that challenge our views. At the heart of the law of Moses was the Ten Commandments, 
and among them, do not murder. And yet, the Jewish authorities are looking for ways to kill Jesus because he's not following God their way. So rather than beat around the bush, Jesus comes right back to the crux of their issue with him. He healed a man on the Sabbath. Remember the crime? So much for my idea that Jesus is always a high-context communicator. Once again, both with the authorities and in the presence of this new crowd of people, Jesus defends his actions and exposes the hypocrisy of theirs. He says, but you work on the Sabbath too when you obey Moses' law of circumcision. For if the correct time for circumcising your son falls on the Sabbath, you go ahead and do it so as not to break the law of Moses. So why should you be angry with me for healing a man on the Sabbath? Jesus refuses to be bound by their constraints of the right way to redeem someone. Pop quiz time. Anyone remember from Matt's sermon who, from the Jewish perspective, was the only person who was supposed to work on the Sabbath? That's right, God. Jesus basically asserts two things here, that the restoration of a person takes precedent over the Sabbath, and that he was following God's will, working at the leading of his Father by healing in this way. And he challenges the Jewish leaders that they're just too hung up on their own perspective of the right way of doing things to see this. Interestingly, throughout the rest of the chapter, we'll also continue to see assumption after assumption rear its head with people demanding that Jesus conform to their perspective rather than bowing to his authority. Verse 27, but how could he be the Messiah, that is? For we know where this man comes from. When the Messiah comes, he'll simply appear. No one will know where he comes from. Or verse 41. Others said he is the Messiah. Still others said, but he can't be. Will the Messiah come from Galilee? We know where he's from. The Messiah can't come from Galilee. And verse 52, from the religious leaders. Search the scriptures and see for yourself. No prophet ever comes from Galilee. Where is that in the scriptures? It's like they're saying, Jesus, you're different than we expected. Have we stopped to consider that he might be different than we expected too? Are my expectations about God most shaped by him, by his word, by the Holy Spirit? Or are they most shaped by the places I've come from? Whether that's a family culture, a national culture, or even a church culture. Now, I'm not advocating that any of those are bad things. We all have a context. And I'm convinced that God delights in the multitude of expressions of what it means to be created in his image. But I think the command Jesus gives the people he's teaching applies every bit as much to us as it did to them. He says, look beneath the surface so you can judge correctly. I don't think Jesus is telling us to stop being who we are. We're not supposed to become little robots who all act exactly the same and view everything from the same perspective. But I do think he's challenging us to come with humility and curiosity, both in our interaction with him 
and in our interactions with each other. James 1 says it this way, Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. I think Jesus is challenging us to jump first to listening and assessing our own reactions and judgments before we judge those of others, to give others the benefit of the doubt, engaging them from a place of grace, even if we don't fully understand them. He's asking us to step into a place of putting aside our judgments so that we can invite God to act in unexpected ways in our lives. And in so doing, perhaps to discover that he's more than we imagined. If I'm being honest, I mess this up quite a lot. I like being right. I like knowing the answer, having people listen to me. Like Matt talked about last week, it can make us really uncomfortable to say, I'm not sure, especially when it comes to aspects of our faith. And sometimes I'm honestly more interested in winning an argument than listening to the person I'm with. Like that debate Hunter and I had about Simon and Eden from The Chosen. I probably could have understood his perspective a lot faster if I'd focused on listening to him and learning from him, instead of on convincing him that my perspective was right. And sometimes, even when I'm trying to seek first the kingdom of God, I get blinded by things I just can't see are keeping me from judging correctly. And if we left it right there, this would be a pretty frustrating, discouraging reality. But Jesus doesn't leave us there. This is one of the reasons I'm so drawn to the Gospel of John. The incarnation, the Word became flesh, is the ultimate laying aside of preference to understand and love another. In those moments when I'm tempted to think, this is too hard, or, well, I messed that up again, I see Jesus, who became one of us, walked among us, and ultimately sacrificed his life for our redemption and restoration. And I see Jesus' promise a few verses later that we don't have to do this alone. On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink, for the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. When he said living water, he was speaking of the Spirit, who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. Jesus isn't saying, good luck, let me know how it goes. It's more like, I want to do this in you. Will you entrust yourself to me, even when the places I take you get hard or uncomfortable or don't look like you expected? Following Jesus in this might mean that we do things that go against what is expected, whether that's from our cultures, our families, our churches, or even ourselves. A couple of weeks ago, we celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. Day. 
I see a powerful picture of what we've talked about, both in his actions and his teaching. The religious leaders of his day, many of them evangelical pastors, pushed that to be a peacemaker, to follow biblical teachings meant to keep the law and avoid conflict. They criticized Dr. King for breaking laws and urged him to stop causing trouble. And many of them did it in the name of God. In response, Dr. King wrote his letter from a Birmingham jail, a defense of his actions, and an exhortation to his fellow religious leaders to stop judging based on their own cultural values and instead judge and act correctly, taking Jesus as their example of radical love. Wonder where he could have gotten that idea. So what like, might this look like for me, for us? Where am I saying, Jesus, I'm going to follow you my way or not at all? Or where am I saying to my brother or sister, you have to follow Jesus my way or not at all? I'm convinced that the places we insist on putting God in a box like this are precisely the places that we miss out on freedom, joy, and life with Jesus. And as much as we trap others in the prisons of our preferences and expectations, I think we also trap ourselves there. So what's standing in your way? Are you willing to ask the Holy Spirit, and maybe also your spouse or best friend, where you might be blinded to the truth by your own preferences or expectations? Because I'm equally convinced that when we are willing to be humble, to be flexible, to let go of assumptions and come with curiosity and a deep desire and commitment to more fully understand and know God, others, and ourselves, then we will experience more of the fullness of life that God intends for us there. And I think that Jesus will meet us there. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your words this morning, for your words of challenge and your words of promise. I thank you that where you lead us, you never send us alone, that you are with us, guiding us, drawing us deeper into relationship with you and into relationship with each other. I ask that you would help us to be open this morning to the things that you would do in and through us to the ways that you would want us to see differently, to put aside preference, to follow you in that. Thank you for your love and for the ways that you lead us in this. We pray this in your name. Amen.